0: The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. No matter where we are in our teaching career, the difference between how we envision our days with children and how those days actually play out can be kind of shocking, much like picturing the perfect date and having it go all haywire. I'm Brett from Heinemann and those are the words of authors Christine Hertz and Christy Moraz in their new book, Kids First from Day One. They say, don't hope for perfection, plan for growth. Hertz and Moraz remind us children are the most important people in the room. They've discovered that putting that idea into practice can start right now, and their book shows how to combine your deepest beliefs and your empathy for children with practical ideas for creating environments and curriculum that engage students most effectively. In Kids First from day one, Christine and Christy have given us a teacher's guide for today's classroom. My colleague Zoe, who is also the author's editor, began today's podcast conversation with Christine and Christy talking about their journey to teaching.
1: So I left college just bubbling with enthusiasm and goodwill for teaching and ready to take on the world and make it a better place. And I was really well grounded in my beliefs about children as competent uh, citizens. I was well grounded in theory and really felt strongly about what I wanted my classroom to look like and sound like and feel like. And then my first year teaching, I can remember getting into the space and having 27 third grade students and just being completely overwhelmed by the demands of all there was still to learn. I was really convinced that all you needed to learn about teaching happened in the four years of undergraduate school, and then you should be able to go and you should be able to be an extraordinarily exceptional teacher. And that idea of perfection was quickly squashed for me. And that was a hard initial lesson that teaching is about growth and practice and finding your practice and not
2: necessarily having everything just perfectly so from day one. And I think for me what's really interesting is when I went into the classroom I don't know that I had any beliefs about teaching. Like I don't think I knew what I believed. I knew that I wanted a pillow on the rug. I knew that I wanted clear bins. I knew that I wanted this particular pocket chart from this particular store. And I don't know why. I don't think I knew why I wanted any of those things. And because of that I had no mechanism for sifting what mattered from what didn't matter at all. And I think it was really messy my first year because I didn't know how to choose important. So it was like, I wanted this pillow, but I didn't know why I, what I thought a pillow should be in the classroom. You know, it became about the pillow until I realized, oh no, I think I believe that kids should have seating options. Oh wait, oh wait, it's not about the pillow, it's about seating options. I feel like a lot of that first five years was trying to figure out why I I did the things I did and then realize that, oh, there are beliefs driving all of this. And some of them were beliefs that I still have today, for example, that, you know, kids are not waiting to become anything. They are fully formed human beings who have all the same rights as adults. Like I still really strongly believe that. But some of them sort of changed, which is I used to believe. In order to have a smooth running classroom, I had to be Miss Moraz and I had mm-hmm. to wear high heels. And I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> obviously. So I think part of the work that sort of grew in this book came from a lot of matching your vision to your classroom is knowing what. But has driven your vision and that allows you to sort of say oh it's not about having the plants on the windowsill because I love plants but what do I believe kids deserve or what do I believe a classroom should look like in integrating that
1: and what you can let go of every right. year I think we let go of more and more stuff and more and more expectations for ourselves and replace them with different expectations for ourselves and for our students as well.
3: So you're talking a lot about beliefs, and I think one belief that probably all teachers share is that the kids should come first. The kids should be the most important people in the classroom, and you were talking a little bit about this already. I wonder if you could say a bit more about what can get in the way of those beliefs. What can get in the way of putting kids first for teachers?
2: So I tell a story in this book that, like, I wish I could pretend was about someone else because I don't actually like owning to it, but free therapy, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So when I first started teaching, I really got into teaching because I was like, I want to change the world and make the world a better place, and I'm going to make that happen in the classroom. And you could see the stars shooting from my eyes of, like ah, we're going to change the world through projects and all of this. We're going to write letters to the president and recycle. And and then I got into the classroom, and it was utter chaos. I was trying to teach with good intentions, and it didn't go very well, I would say. The school I was teaching at, it was very common for classrooms to use color charts and clip charts. And as my class basically cartwheeled, between the lunchroom and the classroom. And I literally. <laughs> tried, no, literally, and as I tried to teach by just being louder and louder, I started to feel like I must be doing it wrong because everybody else's classroom seems so smooth. So for me, management was a huge barrier between the classroom I wanted and the classroom I had. And I didn't have Any skills, And so I started using the clip chart that was being used in some of the other classrooms. Very quickly, my classroom dynamic changed. It got calmer, but there was also an undertone, and I couldn't really pin what it was until one day I asked a kid to move his clip, and he just shredded the clip chart. And there was this half a minute, and then kids cheered. I still get chills thinking about it because I'm like, what am I doing to kids? I still remember that drive home just... Processing that event Mm -hmm. and thinking about how I thought the classroom had gotten better, but that was from my point of view. And for a lot of kids, their days had gotten a lot worse. And I still, when I think about that, it just like stops me in my tracks to think that choices that were made with good intention, really good intentions aren't enough to have successful classrooms for kids. And I think that was my takeaway, which is it's never enough that it's A, working for me, and B, it can't be that it's good intentions. It has to be that it's actually supporting the kids in the classroom. And since that day I've made a lot of changes and I'm sort of rallied against the clip chart. We talk a lot about that in the book as well. But, you know, I always wondered what's best for kids in my room, but I didn't always stop to think if what I was doing was the best for kids, if at appearance sake, it looked to be going well.
1: Yeah, and we've shifted our thinking from what's best for kids in this space, in this confined nine-month, ten-month period, to really thinking about our time with this child as one little piece of a long continuum of their entire life. And so it's not that it needs to be this wonderful third-grade year experience or first-grade year experience, but it needs to be that they feel valued as citizens in our community, that they feel like they have choice in what they're doing doing, that they feel like school is a place of joy and curiosity and wonder. Every belief that we have is rooted in this idea that this is not about our one year, it's about this child's life, and we just have the opportunity to be involved in one little piece of their life. Really, everything that we try to do in our classroom is reflected in that core belief that the kids just come first.
2: And I think just to add on to that, that one of the things that I think has shifted a lot is I used to want to be my kid's favorite teacher. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like I wanted them to go to the next grade and like mourn me. Yeah. How is that good for a kid to leave you? It's like the X you can't get over. Is that a bad analogy to make about kids? But it's like the experience exists within you so yeah. that when they leave... Each year should be better and better and better for them. It shouldn't be about having this teacher or that project, but it should be what makes school powerful is how I, as the student, feel in it. Not that the teacher did, wacky hat day. Not that you can't do that, but that can't be what you're pinning your hopes and dreams on.
3: So you just said a lot of really great things. I think one thing that keeps coming up is that all of us, all teachers, are going to experience setbacks in the classroom. The shredding of a clip chart or whatever it might be on a given day. Um, something that you say in the book, you say, don't hope for perfection, plan for growth. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. What would you like readers to do with that sentiment?
1: So several things that can really help you let go of that perfectionist ideal or self-compassion, really going easy on yourself, knowing things that trip you up that um, really trigger your worries about your classroom, things that wake you up at three in the night, and just breathing easy and saying you'll work through these things, building a network for collaboration, finding other teachers in your building online who can really be your mentors and support you no matter how many years you've been in the profession. And then choosing one little thing at a time can be really helpful to think about. All right, so I'm really going to think about what time I'm having children do unstructured things versus structured, and then focusing on that for a week, a month, a year, and working on growing in that regard. There can be be feeling sometimes where you're sitting in your car at the end of the day and it can feel like nothing's gone well. And often it happens in November, like this long stretch from August until November. And there's this time where it just feels like, what am I doing? How can I do anything right? And so I think recognizing that all teachers go through really tricky moments like that and then taking care of yourself, going home, putting everything away for a little bit, find some good habits, and then coming back to the next day with a fresh start.
2: And I think when it comes to talking about like planning for growth, not for perfection, I just, I think it came up a lot for us when we work out Mindset for Learning, the idea that you'll never be perfect. You have to drop the words like, I'm a good teacher, I'm a bad teacher out of your mental vernacular and just realize that what makes you successful is learning from every day. Mm -hmm. And like that was really hard for me in the beginning. I like to be really good at things. I'm like the poster child for a fixed mindset and if it wasn't a good day I was in the car like composing Mm -hmm. letters to other places to hire me. You know like please let me be your zookeeper. I don't have any qualifications but I will try. It it was really hard for me to learn from that those moments because I couldn't face them. And only when I was like ah things happen. Just the other day I We were doing water experiments and it was just, I turned around and kids were like drinking sewer water. I should have known better, but I didn't. If I had known better, I would have done better. And now I'm about to learn better. Don't put out sewer water. It wasn't really sewer water. Home (laughs) listeners, everyone's fine, I think.
1: I know a first grader who will just, every time something little happens that's a mistake that I make, she literally will chime up and say, it's okay, nobody's perfect. And that's the voice that we all need in our heads all the time. I mean, she's so sweet, so kind, so understanding. And then it's like, so what's next? Nobody's perfect, what's next? And so that idea that you're not gonna be content in just letting things marinate the way they are, but that nobody's perfect, but what can we do next?
3: So you're talking a lot about how important it is for teachers to think about themselves and to be kind to themselves. I think along with that goes the idea of empathy. You write about empathy in the book. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how that fits into the classroom world.
2: One of the things that came up for us when we were working on this book was the idea that so much of what makes a classroom run well is our own mental state in some ways. And one of the components that is so critical is that of empathy and not just that kids should be demonstrating empathy towards each other, taking each other's perspective, understanding kids' feelings, but that we as teachers can truly and honestly remember what it feels like to be five or seven or eight or 10 or 15. I remember being 15 too well, which is why I'll never set foot in a middle school. But what I'm saying is that when we are able to remember that, it helps us design classroom with kids truly in mind. So I think about what it is to be five for the first time snow and Mm -hmm. you realize, why am I trying to do this math? We should be out in that snow. You know what I mean? Like we should all be at the window talking about snow. We shouldn't be trying to power through because they're fine. That's like their fifth first snowfall. You know, kids are like super excited because they open their lunch for the first time. Sometimes we can be like, that's great. As we are, you know, trying to do eight other things. Those are the huge successes. When we truly have empathy for our kids and are remembering what it's like to be in that place for them, we design classrooms differently. We think more carefully about how we're structuring the day, how much we're asking kids to be still versus move, how we respond to a kid shouting out on the rug. I was like a classic shouter outer. I was dying to say this thing I knew. But as a teacher, the shouter outer, I'd be like, quiet signals. That's so crazy because, like, I'm in a staff meeting be like, oh, I got to say something about this. <laughs> Remembering that I can respond to the shouter-outer from a place of, I get it, you are dying to tell me that you can see David's butt on this page. I'm like, I get that. No David by David Shannon. <laughs>
1: it's not some adult reading. Yeah, I think that really when you start creating a classroom culture that builds empathy to its very core, then it changes the way that you are as a teacher because you're now you're looking around and you're empathizing in every decision that you're making and every small problem, you're really starting from a place of empathy to work through with children. But then at the same time, you're building a classroom community of children who talk about empathy, who learn different aspects of what empathy looks like and sounds like and how they can be more empathetic. And I think we've been saying for a little while now that we want our classrooms of today to really reflect the world of tomorrow. And the reality for these children is that it's not about the world of tomorrow. It's what's happening here in our spaces every single day. And we want to build spaces that are full of caring and kind children who celebrate the big successes and the first snows, but also will help us get through what can feel like really big setbacks as well.
2: Teachers make about 3,000 decisions a day and you're making them this fast. So the closer you are to connecting in that relationship, the more likely those decisions will reflect what kids need. And you're living a model of what you want kids to, to be doing. How great would the world be if people start every conversation with, I can see what you're saying.
3: So a lot of the situations you're talking about, like snow or excitement about a button, a picture book, or something like that, could be triggers for disasters. But in the book, you recommend adapting practices to move away from what's traditionally known as a classroom management situation into more of a community building stance. Wonder if you could say a little bit more about that.
1: We think about the word management, and it automatically brings to mind, you know, like everybody in neat little boxes, filing their neat little paperwork, you know, little cogs in the machine, and as soon as you step foot into a classroom, you know that teaching and learning is a lot messier than that. And so there are so many variables happening all the time. 3,000 decisions a day a teacher is making, and so by Friday we have decision fatigue and we're completely shut down. But the thing about creating a classroom community versus creating a classroom management system is that the more you do upfront to create that community, the less the teacher has to be the center of it as time goes on. And so instead of... Of this teacher being the center of all of the wheels that are working around that person, then the community is kind of delivering its own checks and balances. We're working at a hum. There are things that are going on all over the space without the teacher being on top of everything. You can't see everything, you can't hear everything, although we do seem to see and hear pretty well. In overall, our sleep, yeah. in our sleep. Or like <laughs> that thing comes back to you, like, oh my gosh, I know what they said. What's more beneficial is that we start our work of classroom and community building by thinking about what we're asking children to do. So we don't just teach engagement, like keep writing long and strong, just do it, keep going. Instead, engagement is a byproduct of our community building practices. And so we don't need to teach stay in your spot and keep working because if what we're asking children to do is in their zone of proximal development and something they can access and something they've had choice over and something they're really excited about, then that engagement piece is there in every classroom in every corner of the world there are moments and there are children who still have some really tricky difficult moments and so there are strategies that we can use that can really support those children and those moments we get into this more in the book but there are specific protocols that have been backed by research that say like first try this then try this then try this we've both been there literally in the room day after day helping children work through these really intense moments and it's hard but But I think, again, everything we're doing is coming back to building the community. And so it's not about managing this really intense moment or this really tricky student. But instead, it's about how can we wrap them into our community and find ways for them to be successful as well.
2: I think what often happens is a lot of the classroom management, the stickers, the marble jar, the name on the board with checks... Again, that comes from a belief that kids need to be nudged into doing the right thing or rewarded, or punished into doing the right thing. But one of the things we've really come to believe is that kids do the best they can as they understand it. We talk a lot about behavior- as something you teach just like any other subject. And so we can't, if you wouldn't think to do it for reading and it wouldn't work to teach reading, then it's not gonna help kids to develop the social skills or the social competencies that they need in the classroom. So if a reader is struggling, you know, you don't write their name and put checks next to that until they get the right word because they don't have the strategies for it. I think I personally connect because I was a first grader who got put in the hall a lot. I spent a lot of quality time staring at the doorway into the classroom because I didn't. Have have a lot of skills for waiting, hence the shouting out. And so the way I was managed is I was moved outside the classroom. And what I really needed to learn were ways to, to keep myself patient. And I didn't really get a chance to learn them until later on. A lot of what we talk about in the book is how do you teach behavior skills? Because like when I removed my classroom management system, it didn't mean the behavior was automatically better. I still went back to that chaos. So mm-hmm. That was the thing. They ripped mm-hmm. up the clip chart. I didn't want the clip chart anymore, but I didn't have anything else. Thus started this like like action research project on how do you teach a community to come together. And spoiler alert, it's section three.
3: So actually in section two, where you talk about the physical environment sort of fits into what you're talking about now as well. How does the classroom space itself contribute to uh, building community instead of control?
1: A lot of our physical classroom beliefs stem from work that's come out of the Reggio Emilia community in Italy, where they've done a lot of work in early childhood centers talking about the environment as a teacher. And so if you think about it, what you have in your classroom for children to explore, but also to have access to and to have control over can really help them then become their own teachers in a way. And so they're grabbing scissors when they need to, you know, cut something up or they're running over and grabbing that clipboard because they've decided to come and sit at the rug. And so again, going back to our beliefs about teaching, we've given children a lot of opportunities to make choices, but to also have ownership over the materials. One of our guiding principles was an aha a couple years ago is that anything that's essentially like in the grasp of the child should be something that they can access when they need it. And so maybe it's a thing of Band-Aids under the sink and so they can grab that when they need it or a dustpan and broom, new lined paper. These community supplies mean that the room is theirs as opposed to just this is the teacher area and this is your area. And so once they walk in the door, the space is designed with them in mind, nooks and crannies for little kids, spaces for older children to work on their own or in small groups a space for all ages to gather as a whole group. This space evolves over time. The more your classroom evolves with your group of children, moving furniture, putting things on the wall, the more it will feel like their community and a place they belong. And that's, you know, one of those (laughs) inherent needs in people is that you want to feel like you belong somewhere and this is your space. And the more a child can feel that, the more they'll be engaged in this whole community.
2: It's room design with empathy. Like Mm -hmm. that comes back the idea of empathy, which is if you're going to have it exposed, then kids should be allowed and encouraged to use it as they see fit. And not necessarily dictating the rules of scissors are for this time or markers are for that time, but letting them be thoughtful about how and when they're using supplies. And we talk about this that it's not, it's not Lord of the Flies. Like we're not like <laughs> and die for everyone and then we just like sit back and we're like whoever survives come to the rug but instead that the reason why you have community supplies is so they'll get in an argument over the red that's the point of it I don't want everyone to have their own red marker because then we never learn how to resolve the disagreement of the red marker fast forward 30 years and we don't know how to like work as a society and I think sometimes as teachers when we think I don't have time for them to argue over markers cuz we got to get to the work. But the thing is that's the work of being alive and we can't say, "Oh, I'm teaching readers and writers" aside from the fact that mm-hmm. we're actually teaching people who read and write and It's the people part that we have to keep coming back to, which is we want to give kids the right sorts of problems as 5, 10, 15-year-olds so when they get to be 25, 35, 45, they have the right kind of skills. Because how I negotiate over that red marker is how I'm going to negotiate over a parking spot both of us want. That's a terrible example. But you get the point. So I think that it seems like such a silly thing, communal supplies versus personal supplies. But one of them implies something about the community and the other, like, what do we value? We value personal property. We value sharing and problem solving. It's all those little things that come back to your beliefs. And we believe that children have the right and we have the responsibility to learn how to exist together.
1: And another piece of that is, again, thinking of what you can let go of. So if you're thinking from a place of designing for empathy, designing from a place of empathy, then and you think about something like your teacher desk, what purpose does your teacher desk have in a classroom that's designed for children and for this community? And our answer was well, none. So find a different way to store your stuff and pile your papers, <laughs> still happens, but you don't necessarily need your desk. And what's the purpose of an assigned seat? Well, maybe it's so that everybody knows where to go to get right to work, but is there a way to do this with more choice for children and more independence and autonomy and decision-making on their part and thinking about where it feels good to work? And the answer is yes.
2: That goes back to just our one big idea, which is it's People will make a variety of decisions. I think it's knowing why you're making that Mm -hmm. decision that's going to help you chisel out your beliefs. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes teachers don't think that assigned seats are an option. Like they think, well, everybody needs a seat spot. Well, why do you think that? If there's not a belief backing that up, dig into it a little bit and say, well— just because it's been done that way doesn't mean always. In my my classroom, we don't, every kid doesn't have a chair to sit in. There's no way for everyone to sit in a chair at one time, and that horrifies Mm -hmm. people sometimes. But tell me why they all have to be sitting in a chair. You can email it to me or place it in the comments. (laughs) (laughs) It's pushing against the status quo and really saying, what's the belief system Mm -hmm. that's driving those decisions?
3: Kids First from Day One is broken down into four
1: parts. Could you take a minute and just walk us through the parts and how they work together? So the first part of the book is all about the teacher mindset and different ways that you can work on yourself as a teacher, thinking about being growth-oriented, empathetic, thinking about being flexible. The second part of the book is all about building a physical space, the physical classroom environment. The third part is about building the emotional environment, the social-emotional environment. And then the fourth part of the book is about creating a responsive curriculum that really meets the needs of the specific students in your classroom.
2: I think one of the big points we want to make about the book is that there are a few things you can do before the kids come, but the real catalyst for all of it, is the kids themselves. (laughs) And so one of the things that is absolutely true is you might read it over the summer and get filled with ideas, Mm -hmm. but the whole point of the book is kids come and then what? And so one of the things we really tried to be mindful of is talk about sort of in every chapter, in every section, how does this work grow and build with actual kids in front of you? How do we adapt our classroom as it moves forward? Whether you're in your first year, your 40th year, as we wrote this, I'm in my ninth, Eight, 17th year, because I started teaching when I was 12. That's why I look so good. Um, at writing it, I was refining my practice. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, one of the things that we thought a lot about too, is like thinking about how to make sure the room feels playful, then in turn, made me become more playful as well. And so just, it's not like you'll read it and your, your life has been fixed. Maybe. Let us know if it is. Mm -hmm. Write a review on Amazon if that's the case. But also it's designed to be your friend and be with you through the hard times, Mm -hmm. tear-stained, coffee-stained, wine-stained. And in it, we try to really direct people to other resources as well. These are the friends who helped us through, and we hope they'll help you through too.
1: And I think that we do think of the book as like a launching pad. And so it's a toolkit. It's a guide. We're your friends. We're here to help. But there is a larger community out there that's really trying new things with their teaching, trying to make a change, just getting into it. And so we're, our hope is also that people come together on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and in real life and in you know coffee shops and figure out a way to make their classrooms more closely aligned to their vision of what they want in their space and in their world.
0: My thanks to Christine Hertz and Christy Mraz for their time today. Their new book, Kids First from Day One, is available now at Heinemann.com. We invite you to watch all the videos that accompany the book after you receive it. In these videos, you can watch the authors work with a class full of students. We'll be sharing samples of those videos on the Heinemann blog, in addition to the blogs from the authors. You can connect with the authors on Twitter and Instagram. We've shared links to how to connect with them on our blog, which you can find at blog.heinemann.com. We'd love for you to subscribe to the Heinemann Podcast on iTunes and Google Play, where you can also leave a comment or review. We're also now streaming on the Stitcher and tune in radio apps. You can also follow Heinemann on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as our various Facebook groups. Plus, you can get a daily teacher tip right on your phone directly from Heinemann authors by downloading the Heinemann Teacher Tip app. All this and more at Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.